Not too long ago, I was leaving my grandparents' house with Bryn and my dog Roy, and I saw their neighbor walking down the road, and it's a, a man that I lived by when my dad and I lived with my grandparents, and it's a, a man that's lived next to my grandparents for, uh, with a small absence uh, for uh, 30 years or more, and out of nowhere, I just sensed that God wanted me to talk to him about Jesus, and I didn't. Uh, I did later, but I, I just drove down the road contemplating it, and it, it was like I was surprised that God would somewhere in my soul tell me to talk to somebody about the gospel, that Jesus came to die on a cross to save sinners, which we all are, from their sins. And it makes me think that I'm just, in general, too quick to forget about how many people are going to hell, how many people are lost and need a Savior. And, and the truth is, I oftentimes feel or think or pretend or act like God's grace is not big enough for everybody. And I'll tell you one way that it works out in my life is that I have people that I pray for that even in my prayers, if you were to record them and listen to them, you would think, man, Chad doesn't really think these people will ever come to salvation. He just, he just knows that he's supposed to be praying for them, but there's no hope in his voice. There's no hope in his words. There's no, there's no thought in his brain that, that these people will come to salvation. And I could go down a list of people that are coming even into my head now, and if I was being totally honest with you, if we could get alone and I wasn't on a stage and I could just say to you, I'd say, man, I... I'm pretty sure these people will never give their lives to Jesus, that these people will never become Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, and I think that, that somewhere inside of you, you might kind of have the same view of God's grace as me. You might think, and this is pretty common, so you're not alone in this, if, if God knows what I've done, then he will never accept me. His grace cannot be big enough for this thing or that thing. My cousin had a friend who died after becoming a Christian, but the final hang-up in her life, her, her friend's life, was, was simply that idea. I have done too many bad things. I have done too many things wrong. There's so much hurt and this legacy of, of hurt and pain that I've left for people that, that I don't think that, that Jesus could ever accept me. I don't think that, that Jesus' death could be good enough to save me. I don't think that God's grace can be big enough for me. And then there's others of us who are Christians, and, and maybe you, you know, you're like me and you kind of forget or kind of feel like people might not become Christians, but, but you might even take it a step further, and there might be people in your life that you don't even want God's grace to be poured out on. There was a man that I attended church with when I was about two years old, and uh, he lived in the retirement home I worked at later, and his name's Jake DeShazer. He's passed away now, and Jake DeShazer was a Doolittle, Doolittle bomber, and he was involved in that, and he uh, was taken captive by the Japanese people, and for a long, long time, he was not fed very well, and he was beat up, and he was hurt, and he was 
mocked and, and he lived as a prisoner to the Japanese people. And, and while he was in that prison cell, he found a Bible and he became a Christian. And when he got out, the last thing in the world that he ever, 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 ever wanted to do was to help Japanese people know that Jesus was the savior of the world, that they could find forgiveness even for the things that they had done to him. And that is where we get hung up sometimes, right? I mean, yeah, God's grace is big enough, but I don't want God's grace to be poured out on those people. The American church acts like this. Jesus' final command and the main command for the church is to make disciples of, of him, to teach people about the story of him, that he died for the world, and, and to lead people into full obedience to him. And that's what we're talking about at our church lately. And we've set these goals, and we know that the vision of the church is to lead every person to Jesus and every person into full obedience to him. But, but if you look at the actions of the American church, don't you just feel don't you just feel like maybe we don't care that much? That we just kind of got the grace and it's for us, but we kind of hate everybody else out there that disagrees with us. And when you look at people's Facebook posts that you know are Christians or even at your own Facebook post, it's like, well, you're one of them and we're over here. We have our grace and we really like it and we sing songs about grace and, and, and we love God's amazing grace. But you people, you people, I mean, yeah, we don't, you're never coming to Jesus. I mean, you're one of them. You don't vote like me. You don't think like me. You don't act like me. So I, it's not that I don't want you to experience God's grace. I just know that you won't. And so I'll just be upset with you. And this is the type of thinking I think that we, maybe not you, but the American church culture has been locked into for way too long. Jake DeShazer became like the biggest evangelist in Japan. I heard him speak at my college one time and he's a little old man that barely talked. His wife was loud. She ordered for him even at the retirement home and they don't include that in the biographies written about him, I'm sure, but, but he just is kind of there and, and he told us this story. He said one time he came to speak at, at an evangelistic meeting and the stadium that he's speaking at is full and he's late for because of traffic or whatever, and, and he goes up to the door, and, and there's a, a bouncer, for lack of a better term, a person collecting tickets, and, and he, he's like, um, sir, I need to get in there. And the guy's like, you, sir, it's full. You can't come in here. This is happening. And Jake, and if you knew the guy, I mean, like this big and really, really, really old when I knew him. I mean, just picture like the oldest person that you can possibly think of. He's like, but I'm supposed to speak. <laughs> My uncle spent two weeks in Japan doing some missionary work, and he said when people were told that he went to church with Jake and Mike went to church with us, that they would look at him like he was some type of superhero. Mike was a superhero simply because he went to church with this man who was leading people to Jesus uh, in their country. And I think what, what Jake came to understand and what we need to come to understand is a truth that we can see in the book of Jonah. And what we're going to see in the book of Jonah is answers to these questions. Is God's grace big enough for me? Is it big enough for those people? Should I want it for everyone? 
Is God's grace enough for the things that I've done wrong, for the things that they have done wrong, even for those people who seem so far away and make so many stupid decisions and have rejected for so long the truth of Jesus and the reality that there is a God. And we're gonna spend four weeks studying this book and in this book what you're going to see is that this same truth is taught over and over and over again and that is that we all can be engulfed by God's grace. In fact, the book of Jonah named Jonah, uh, you would think it's primarily about a man named Jonah, but the book is really, if you read it and you pay attention to the nuances of it, it's really about God. He is the most important character in the book, and the book is not about a man running from God and how we shouldn't run from God the way it's most often taught from the pulpit. It's primarily about God's engulfing grace and he, how he wants to engulf every person in that grace. And so at the very beginning of the book, we read this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. This is Jonah. We read about Jonah also in 2 Kings 14, 23 through 25. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, check this out, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from gath Hefer. That's about all we know that, about Jonah. We know from that, those sentences right there that he was a prophet uh, from about 786 to 746 for the 10 northern tribes of Israel because they were split at that time. You had Israel and Judah, 10 tribes in Israel, and Jonah is a prophet for them. The name Jonah means dove, and doves are oftentimes a symbol of peace, but they are also a symbol for fleeing from death in the Old Testament, Psalm 55, 6 through 8. I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter, far from the tempest and the storm. And doves are also a symbol of lamenting, Isaiah 38, 14. I cried like a swift or thrush. I moaned like a mourning dove. We don't know why Jonah's name was Jonah. Maybe he was just named that and that was the end of it. But those two pictures of what a dove symbolizes, running from death and moaning, whining, complaining, they are really foretelling about what we will see in this book. Because in Jonah, we see a very flawed person that God wants to use to engulf people in grace. And I can tell you this, that as you look at Jonah and you ask, am I good enough to be used by God? The answer will be emphatically yes. Continues, Jonah 1, 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. This is God talking to Jonah. The prophet Nahum describes Nineveh in more detail. And if you want to read the book of Nahum in the Bible, then you can see much about this city called Nineveh. And as our story progresses over the next four weeks, I'll reveal more to you about this city because it's important. I mean, it goes God, Jonah, Nineveh as far as characters in our story. But for now, you need to know it's about 550 miles north of where Jonah is living in the city of Jerusalem and about 220 miles 
miles north of Baghdad today, if that helps you place it, if you know geography better than me. Uh, it had an urban perimeter of a seven and one half miles, 1,730 acres, so it's not a small city at all. It's pretty large. Uh, the greatness that God uses here when he says the great city probably refers to its size, but it was also powerful for about a 150-year period in the history of the world, and it fell to the Babylonians in 612, so Jonah's kind of life, it, he looks at Nineveh, and during his time, and just about only his time, Nineveh is a great and powerful city. It had a library with 20,000 clay tablets. I just think that that took a lot of time to create. I mean, my goodness, thank you for the printing press. It had lush gardens and zoos. Uh, the king had a palace that was over two acres large with 80 different rooms in it. It was like the main building in, in Babylon at the time. And archaeology, this is really, really important, confirms the wickedness of the Assyrians. One author has said that Nineveh had taken up the sword more than any other groups. One guy in their history, whose name I won't even try to pronounce to you, was known for tearing off the lips and hands of his victims. Yeah, right? Like, oh, this story's going to make more sense when you have that in your mind, where Jonah heads in just a second is going to make a lot more sense. And then another guy was known to uh, fillet his victims alive and make great piles of skulls outside the city. I don't even know what that looks like. I feel like I would die after the first fillet, but, um, but this is what the guy did. And the Assyrians really relished, I said Babylonians a minute ago, I meant the Assyrians, they relished in their brutality. They loved being known as an empire that was more brutal than all of the other empires around them. This is the city of Nineveh. Now here's the other really important part, and, and this story, you've read it and you think it's about a whale, but I mean, you have to pay attention to these things to really get it. This is the other really key part. The Israelites, whom Jonah is a part, had narrowly escaped captivity at the hands of the Assyrian people. I mean, Jonah and his family had narrowly escaped, probably his grandparents had narrowly escaped having their lips cut off by these people. And you can read this in 2 Kings 18, 17 through 1936, a pretty large uh, uh, story about a siege that had come upon the Israelites where God had saved them. But if you're Jonah and you know this story, we've almost been captured by these people who are more brutal than anything that I know, the worst people on earth, and we've almost been taken by them. And I would have watched, we would have watched our families be killed and filleted alive. It is the great, I mean, the Assyrians were the great enemy of the Israelites at this time. I mean, you can pick whatever enemy you think America has right now. It seems like we have quite a few around the world, but pick the biggest one in your mind, and that is, magnify that, and that is how Jonah and the Israelites felt about the Assyrians. And this makes matters even worse. Elijah had predicted that the doom of the Israelites would one day come. Now picture Jonah living after Elijah and he knows that the end of his country is going to come, that they are going to be taken into captivity and he knows that Nineveh is a wicked place in the middle of a wicked empire and he knows that they are the most likely group to overtake them. And now God says to him, arise and go 
preach to the Ninevites. <laughs> I think I heard you wrong, God. I mean, that, you couldn't have said the Ninevites, those are bad people. And here, this even makes it worse for Jonah, poor guy. He's like the only prophet in Israel's history who is told to go to another location and tell them that God, a God that they don't even care about or think about or serve, is upset with what they're doing. I mean, most of the prophets just sat around in Israel saying, hey, we need to repent, we need to repent, God's mad at you, God might send judgment on you. But here's Jonah like, hey, this is unheard of. God is now telling me to go preach, to go proclaim that God is angry with these people. And, and, and notice this, it's not like God is saying, hey, Jonah, go tell them that I'm loving and I'm gracious and that I want them to repent and that there's salvation to be offered. God is actually just saying to Jonah, hey, go tell them that I'm mad at them. A God that they don't care about fear, they probably believe in him just like they believe in a whole bunch of other gods. Just go tell them I'm angry at him. And then in 1-3, and I hope this makes more sense now for this person named Jonah, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the ferry, went aboard and failed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah goes the opposite direction. Joppa was the nearest seaport to Jerusalem. It's right near where Tel Aviv is today, actually. Uh, and Tarshish was a probably a Phoenician seaport, and it was some 2,000 miles directly west, uh, and it was to that time what the people thought about as the farthest place in the world. It was as far west as you could possibly go, and we know that because uh, of the Bible in part. Psalm 72:10, may the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tributes to him. And so the psalmist uses Tarshish as the, for the idea of just being far away. It's like can God be glorified from the furthest places on earth or some of the furthest places on earth? Isaiah 69, surely, surely the islands look to me and the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar and with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with Splendor. So literally, Jonah is trying to go to the furthest place that he can possibly get from God. And he says, it says here that he is not just trying to flee going to Nineveh, he's actually trying to flee the presence of God, which Jonah would have known very well was impossible, but he didn't want to do this. I mean, he did not want to go picture his situation to a place and, and teach them that God was angry at them and have them repent and then destroy his country. Jonah is trying to get away from God. In Psalm 139, 7 through 9, we know that that's not possible. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make up my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. But Jonah is desperate to get away from God. And so he heads for a place that is 2,000 miles away. I want you to notice how normal this is when people try to flee from God. We leave locations where we have sensed God's presence strongly and 
I might come back to this at the end, but just think about it for a second. When people are rejecting God's call on their lives, when they are being disobedient to him, when they are sinning, when they are doing things that they know God doesn't want them to do, the first place that they leave is church. They get out of the church because in church they sense the presence of the Lord. And the second thing that you'll see, and this is a further step, but when they've really rejected God and they want nothing to do with God and if they have Christian families, then they will leave their Christian families and they will avoid being around their Christian families and they will tell their friends about how their Christian families are just too conservative and too Republican and they can't be around them anymore. But they're trying to get away from the presence of of God. And Jonah is no different. He knows that God is everywhere. He knows that no matter if he's dead or alive, God will still see him. But he has been in God's presence in a powerful and unique way his whole life, probably in Jerusalem, his whole adult life in Jerusalem. And so he says, I got to get out of here because I don't want that job. Now, in our modern context, we think like, What's so bad about preaching? I mean, they might repent and all of that, but listen, listen to Jonah's reason. You might think he's scared. I mean, an Israelite walks into an Assyrian city like, hey guys, God's mad at you. Yeah, like now your lips are gone, right? I mean, that's like a bad day. And you think maybe Jonah's scared. I mean, maybe he is worried about what might happen to him if he goes there. Maybe he's scared they'll reject him. I mean, that's always our excuse for not talking to people about the engulfing grace of God. Maybe I'll get rejected. But Jonah is not scared of either. And in Jonah 4.2, something we'll come back to in a few weeks, we read his reason for not going. Jonah says that he ran away because he knew that God was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah is worried that the Ninevites will repent and that God will not judge them. Jonah knows that God's grace is big enough even for this wicked city and this wicked nation. But Jonah doesn't want them to experience the grace of God. And we get it, right? I mean, think about the people that you know and the people that have hurt you and the people that you want to feel guilt about the things that they have done to you. And you think, man, if they receive the grace of God, then they don't have to pay for the things they've hurt me with. They don't have to be held accountable anymore because we know if we read the New Testament because Jesus, Jesus paid the penalty for them. And then there's Jonah who's going, man, if I go there and they receive God's grace, my country might get destroyed. It's really easy. And in most sermons that you listen to on the book of Jonah, it's just like, don't flee from God. It's a bad idea as we'll see in a second. And it is a bad idea to flee from God. But this is so much deeper and harder. And I think most people love to hear the book of Jonah preached because when they hear it, they're sitting in church and they're thinking, well, I haven't gone anywhere. This is very pleasant. I like that we're talking about this and not worshiping in spirit and truth because I am here. I haven't gone anywhere. This is easy. But Jonah isn't just fleeing from God. Jonah is rejecting people that God wants to save. And far too many of us that sit here because of forgetfulness or just uncaringness or simple bitterness 
are rejecting people that God wants to engulf in his grace. Jonah 1.4, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Actually, uh, let me pause there. I wanna, I'm going to read the rest pretty much in its entirety from here on out. I'll make some points at the end. I am going to stop just to give just little teeny details, but, but I want this to flow because it is narrative and it is a story and it's a really beautifully and well-written story. And so I'll try to make this flow as much as possible. Just hang with me here. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. The word sent is a word used for throwing a spear in the Old Testament. And so God is like hurling the sea onto the people. And the Hebrew language personifies the ship. And and what you see in the book of Jonah is really unique because we see that the sea and the wind and the plant and the ship are all in obedience to God. And the one person who doesn't seem to be in obedience to God is his prophet, this man named Jonah, one, five, and six. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain of the ship went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. It's really interesting because the captain, by God's providential knowledge, uses the exact same verbs to Jonah that God had said to him. God said, hey, Jonah, arise and proclaim. And here the captain says, arise and proclaim. And he means pray to your God. Arise and proclaim to your God is what he says. And Jonah couldn't have missed it. The captain had no idea he's being used by God. Like, get up, pray. And Jonah's got to be going, you've got to be kidding can you say something else? Like, I'm going to go back and take a nap. I mean, if somebody woke me up from a nap, even for a storm, I'd be upset anyway. And now this guy, this non-God-fearing Gentile person who has idols on the ship with him, false gods that are made of stone and metal and things like that on the ship, as we'll see in a second, says the very words of God. God is using him to speak to Jonah. And Jonah's got to be thinking, what is happening? And then in 7 through 12, Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Jonah would rather die, by the way, notice that, than go back to Nineveh. He doesn't say, hey, let's turn the ship around. Let's head back to where I can just go do what God wants me to do, because Quite obviously, God's calling me to something and I'm rejecting it. He doesn't say that. He says, pick me up and throw me in the sea. I'll take one for my country. I will die so that the people in Israel will not have to if these hooligans decide to repent, these wicked, wicked Assyrians in Nineveh decide to repent. Throw me overboard and you guys will be okay. Jonah 1, 13 through 16. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. 
but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This passage is most often preached about not running from God, and you shouldn't. And I know that there are people in this room right now who are running from God. You can look at the Bible, the Word of God, and you can see that God wants you to do something. For some of you, that might be give your life to Jesus, and you, you've heard the story, or even when I've talked about the gospel a couple times in this sermon already, you've thought, man, I need forgiveness for my sin. I want to have peace. I want to go to heaven someday. I, I, something inside of me is telling me that Jesus is the way to make that happen. But I'm going to run the other direction. I refuse to give into this because cultural things, because of family things, because of pride things. I am going to go the other direction. God is saying, don't run from me. You can't get away. God won't always bring you back through a storm, but you'll never flee his presence. And there's some here that are running from, from God just in your simple disobedience. And you know God wants you to give up this or do that. And every day you're waking up and you're like, I just want to avoid it. And sometimes you don't come to church on Sundays because you're like, maybe he's going to say the wrong thing. And Chad's going to preach a sermon. And I'm going to remember this thing that I'm supposed to do or not supposed to do. But I really like it. And I don't want to give in to God. And so I will avoid him at all costs. And God is saying, don't run from me. And here's the thing about Jonah, and we'll see this so clearly next week. It's so beautiful. Jonah's going to be saved by God through a big old fish. And the truth is, even if you've been running from God for a very long time, God still wants to engulf you in his grace. This story is not about the punishment that Jonah receives, because Jonah doesn't receive the punishment that he deserves. This story is about God's engulfing grace. That is what is it about. Even if you are a person like Jonah who has run and run and run and you've tried to go the opposite direction, God is doing whatever he has to do to bring you back and you have to choose to accept the grace of God. Here's the other part that's really important and that is spiritual bigotry is not good. And this book is probably first and foremost about God's grace and secondly, it's probably about not being spiritual bigots. And by that, I mean people that don't want certain other types of people to be saved. And this was a big problem for the Israelites. Jonah and the Israelite nation thought that they were the ones who were God's people and that other people didn't deserve it. They didn't want other people to experience it. They didn't want people to have a relationship with God because that was them. That's what set them apart as a nation, in fact. It was their identity. And so they thought if other people get this, then God will bless them and our nation won't be as good. And this book is written in large part to say to the Israelite nation, hey, time out. You're my chosen people, sure. But God's engulfing grace is big enough for everybody. 
for everybody. Now here's the other, here's the other truth that's presented in this passage, and that is that these sailors have a better understanding on God than Jonah. Just listen to the sailors' actions. Compare them to Jonah just for one second. Jonah runs. You got that part of the story, right? He runs, and then he doesn't want to go back, so he says, just kill me, and I won't have to do what God wants me to do. But listen, the captain first tells Jonah to pray. Jonah had even like paused to pray in this whole book. And here's a captain with idols on board, little false gods made of stone, not a God fear of the real God of the universe who created and saves and engulfs us in his grace. And he looks at Jonah, this prophet in Israel who's lived near the temple and tells people what God thinks about things. And he says, hey, maybe we should pray. He says, sleeping. That's a good lesson for all of us. But. And then we see that they're terrified. And they ask Jonah what, is he, what he's done. Jonah isn't even like looking for answers. He's not even thinking about trying to fix the situation. He's endangering people's lives without any care. And these people are like, what have you done to God? They're like calling Jonah to repentance. And then they cry out to the Lord in prayer. Jonah never prays. Follow the story. He never prays. Even after these people tell him to pray, he never prays uh, in, in this chapter of this story. And here are these shipmates these people at sea, these seamen going, God, we need you. And if you're an Israelite, you don't like this. I mean, chapter one is terrible for you. It's easy for us, but they're like, no, 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 no. That's one of our prophets. Like, we are the ones who think about prayer, and we are the ones who seek the will of God, and we are the ones who cry out to God for help. Not those Gentile idol worshipers. And this is like a, this is a book that is supposed to knock the Israelite nation at that time back a peg. Say, hey, time out. I know that I chose you, but the grace that I've given you is supposed to expand to all people. It's big enough for all people, not just your country, not just your people. And here's the other truth. God's grace is sufficient for all people, and we see this. We're going to see it throughout the book. It's going to be over Jonah. God's grace is sufficient, even though Jonah runs. It's going, going to be over the Ninevites, even though they're horribly, horribly wicked. But here we see it over these sailors. They row and they row and they row, and they try to find a solution on their own. Notice that in this story. Jonah's like, throw me overboard. Just do what God wants, and then you will be saved. And they row, and they row, and they row, trying to find their own solution and their own answer. But notice the progression in their lives just in this little storm. First, they are worshipers of false gods. Then they tell Jonah to pray. Then they express fear and reverence towards the real God of the universe and then they pray to God saying, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And then at the end of the story, they greatly fear God, not just fear anymore, but greatly fear God. And they make sacrifices to him and they make vows to him. And it's pretty widely believed that right there in the middle of that storm, these sailors gave their lives to God and were engulfed by his grace forever pretty widely believed that in the midst of this storm, these people found God in a way that will make it so that we, who are Christians, will one day meet them in heaven with us. And the question becomes, is God trying to use a storm to engulf you? 
in his grace. And here's Jonah 1:17 and we won't I'm going to this is for next week more but the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish 3 days and 3 nights. Here's the truth that I want to teach you today. Let me just go off stage for one second. There's a couple types of people that I want to address and the first is those who are running from God and got my running shoes and got my headlight lamp, which I just wanted to wear in public, really. But some of you are like, I, I need something. I need a relationship with God. I need forgiveness. I need joy. I need peace. Like, well, there's God. And you're like, no, I'm going to run away from God. I'm going to reject him. I'm going to get my glasses on. I'm going to get my armband on, which I can't get on. I always have to have Brent help me with this, but you get the idea. And I'm just, I'm going to work harder, and I'm going to do more, and I'm going to make more effort, and, and I'm just, I'm going to flee God, and it won't matter. I'll, I'll, I'll take medication or drugs or whatever I need to take to make myself feel better, but I'm, I'm not going towards God. You're like, I know I need forgiveness. How can I mask that forgiveness? Well, I'll enter into more relationships and I'll make these people tell me that I'm okay and I'll find like-minded people who tell me that I'm not wrong ever. And you run 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 and you're running from God. Like Jonah. Just saying, God, I know what you've said. I understand what you want, but I want something different than you. I don't want you, I want all the benefits and so I'm gonna go the other direction and try to find the peace and the security that I desire in everything else that the world offers. And then there's others in this room who just row and row and row. I mean, you're looking at the grace of God and you're like, that looks big, but man, if I can just, if I can just do a little bit better, if I can just remove this sin and that sin, maybe then God will love me. If I, can just, if I can just find the perfect lifestyle, and as I talked about with the buckets not too long ago, like if I do the right stuff and make the right choices, then I can find the salvation that I'm looking for, the grace that I know I so desperately need. And both of these groups, whether you're running or you're rowing, are just, you, I know, you're worn out. And there's some of you who are even Christians and you know the grace of God, you've experienced the grace of God through the cross. You know Jesus died for you, literally, but yet you run from him because you don't want what he wants for you. And there's still other Christians here who have experienced the grace of God and you still are rowing and rowing and rowing and you're like, man, I gotta make God happy and I gotta do more and you can't just, you never feel forgiven. You're like, man, I did that thing 20 years ago and, and if I just do a little bit extra and I'm just just a little better than maybe I can be forgiven for this and experience the grace of God. And here's what I think God wants us to hear today. Whether you're running or rowing or you're a person on the outside looking at those who are running and rowing and doing things and you're just going, you can't have God's grace. This is what I think God wants you to hear. There are those who are running and there are those who are rowing. But all can be redeemed by the engulfing grace of God. If 
hope you're a person who's just going the other direction or you're a person who's just trying to get back to shore. God wants to redeem you by his engulfing grace. And if you're a person who's not doing either and you're watching people run and you're watching people row and you're just on land going, I got grace, man. Sorry for you. It's probably not going to work out because I did something that was awesome. Jonah 1 wants you to hear that God's grace is big enough for these people and it's your job to tell them about his redeeming power. I mean, if people are running or if people are rowing, the truth is God can redeem them by his engulfing grace. And so this morning, there's some in this room, you just need to say, God, I'm tired. I'm tired of going the opposite direction. I'm tired of simply trying harder, trying to make up for those things that I have done wrong. And you just need to go sink. You need to go dive into the grace that Jesus offered us. I mean, what are you trying to get? Jesus came down, he died, and he did it so you don't have to row your way into forgiveness, acceptance, peace, joy, love, all the things that you're trying to get to. And you don't have to run away from it. In fact, you shouldn't run away from it. It's exhausting. Some of you just need to dive into the engulfing grace of God. There's others of us here who can look at Jonah and be like, yeah, what a jerk. You didn't want those people to know Jesus. But we're looking at people or we're forgetting about people. Every day we interact with people who are rowing or running. They're trying really hard to get God's favor or to feel better, or they're running away from it and they're just rebelling and doing bad stuff and just rejecting outright the things that we call true as Christians. And you're like Jonah, selfish, saying either, I don't want you to accept Jesus, but I think that's probably in the minority, or I really don't care. You're watching, you're just looking at a struggling world and you're doing nothing to help. Even though Jesus, the one who has engulfed you in grace, has shown you that you don't need to run or row. Jesus has saved you. And now you have a lifeline to throw out to people so that they can be engulfed by grace. And you don't care. And so some of us in this room need to care. And we need to look at this fallen, fallen world full of people who are running and rowing. And we need to say, hey, I love you and I want you to know the truth that I know. And that is that God's grace is big enough for you. No matter how long you've run, no matter how far you've rode, God's grace is big enough for you. And we're trying to be a church that leads every person to Christ and every person into full obedience to him. And we have these goals for the year, and you can pick a copy of those goals up at the entry table. But we don't meet goals in the Christian faith simply by saying, let's just meet goals. The way we meet goals is by having a change of heart. And can you imagine if we're a church that stops running 
and isn't rowing, but we're just being engulfed by God's grace and we look at the world around us and we don't forget that they're running and rowing and we don't not care, but we say, hey, you can dive in. You can dive right into this thing because Jesus gave his life. Can you imagine how much that would change? There's plenty of churches out there that look at everybody and say, man, you've run so far from God. Wow, you look nothing like us, losers. Like, look at that. It's like he's on a treadmill. He's never getting anywhere, and this is never going to work out. They're never going to be like us. And there's other churches who are like, just row a little harder. I mean, keep rowing, keep rowing, keep rowing, keep rowing. And that's how people in their churches are always going to be, trying to earn God's grace. But what if we were just a church who were engulfed by the love and forgiveness and the acceptance of God and we invited other people to be a part of it because we cared desperately about them? It would change the world. And I believe that we will change the world as we listen to the truth of Jonah 1. Some are running and some are rowing, but all can be redeemed by the engulfing grace of God. Will you pray with me? Lord, you're so good to us. Your love is incredible. God, because I know how many times I have run the opposite direction of what you wanted. And I've done it with great rationalizations. I mean, I've, I've always come up with good reasons why I'm running for you. But God, every time you have You've allowed for a big fish to swallow me and spit me back up on the shore of your love, Lord, and that is incredible. And God, I want everybody to know about your grace, your ridiculously amazing grace, God, that is so far beyond our comprehension or what we could have hoped for or what we could have asked for or what we could have even desired apart from your word and your spirit moving in us, Lord. And I look... I have family members, God, people that I love desperately who have spent their whole lives running and rowing, just fleeing you and working hard to try to feel the things that you offer. I want them to know you, Lord. I want them to be swept up in your waves of mercy and grace compassion, kindness, goodness, joy, peace. Lord, for those in this room that are just tired because they're trying to earn your forgiveness or they're rejecting you outright, I pray that this morning you would speak to their hearts. You'd help them to go overboard with you. Lord, even for the Christians in this room that have experienced your grace and they knew it at one time, they've been caught in the lies, needing to work harder to be accepted by you or the lies of culture and they've run right into things that they know are disobedient. I pray that you would bring them back to your grace this morning. Lord, those of us that don't fit into either of those categories, Let us not be selfish. Let us show people the way to your love and your mercy, and that is through your son, Jesus, God. 
what he did on the cross, what we will celebrate in just a minute. I pray these things in your name. Amen.